are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert! No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Killers of the Flower Moon, which came out in 2023, and was directed by Martin Scorsese. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Lily Gladstone, Robert De Niro, Jesse Plemons, Tantu Cardinal, Cara Jade Myers, Scott Shepard, Jason Isbell, Jillian Dion, William Ballou, Yancey Redcorn, Brendan Fraser, Sturgill Simpson, and John Lithgow. The genre would be historical crime epic. Money flows freely here now. I do love that money, sir. <laughs> <laughs> This wealth should come to us. Their time is over. This is going to be another tragedy. I ought to kill these white men who killed my family. I need you here. I am right here. Expecting a miracle to make all this go away. You know they don't happen anymore. Wow. Even though I can't quite be sure of the metrics involved, or given that the vast, vast majority of his films have gone pretty dark, this might very well be the angriest film ever directed by Martin Scorsese. Yeah, and at the age of 81, no less. Which is not to say that it's not entertaining nor engrossing, because it is. It's very much a crime epic in the vein of Goodfellas or Casino, but just within a very different setting and with no snappy voiceover narration to drive things. It's supposed to be a suicide, you dumbbell. You didn't tell him to leave the gun. I don't know why I told him to leave the gun. I told him exactly. to leave the gun. Just like you what told him, kid. I don't know why he didn't. I don't know why. I told him just like you told him. You told him to do it in the front of the head, and why did you do it in the back of the head? I, I, it's so simple. The front is the front, the back is the back. He has to make it look like he done himself. It just looks like murder. It's not supposed to be that way. You hear? This is still the same Scorsese who ended Goodfellas with an unrepentant Henry Hill commiserating about how he just can't find good spaghetti while in witness protection. Or a paying audience of suckers lining up for post-incarceration Jordan Belfort so that they too can learn how to sell at the end of Wolf of Wall Street. Scorsese has always excelled with stories that can acknowledge the existence of good people attempting to do good things, but he never lets humanity off the hook, nor the audience for that matter. Now, he's not going to quote lecture you, mind you, but when he's firing on all cylinders as a filmmaker, you're going to feel a degree of culpability, or dare I say guilt, with what you just watched. After all, he is a Catholic through and through. These Astahe are murdering us. In the case of Anna Brown, her family here on the west side have raised funds with the amount of about $2,000 to $5,000 for the arrest and conviction of the murderer. Molly Burkhart has hired a private investigator. Uh Uh-huh. When this money started coming, 
we should have known it came with something else because it's a white man's money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not what we were taught coming down Missouri, mm-hmm. Arkansas, and Kansas. Yeah. What has come to our reservation that doesn't belong here, and it's them. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. like buzzards circling our people. Yeah. yeah. Won't pick us body clean. Yeah. Leave nothing. And that's because, despite tackling subject matter, which on paper is quite grim, the systematic murder of dozens and dozens of Osage tribe members over a relatively short period of time spearheaded by the local sheriff, De Niro playing the local sheriff William Hale, giving his best performance in a long time, who was looking to nab their oil rights. It shows itself to you that Bill Smith didn't take the proper care of many the way he could have. To have a second die, take her head rights and her land. That oil should go to her sister as your wife. Well, he's taking money that by right should go to Molly. The mother, Lizzie, she won't last. Most Osage don't live past 50. When these women die, with how Osage suffer from illness, you have to make it the head rats come to you. You see? Despite that, Scorsese has still managed to craft an old-school epic filled with humor, suspense, intrigue, and even some romance. For a film which runs roughly 210 minutes, I never really felt it. And this is coming from someone who could not say the same thing about his previous film, The Irishman, which is a film that I liked but did not love. It's too long. Leo DiCaprio is fantastic, as is Lily Gladstone, who's an up-and-comer whom I'm embarrassed to admit that I have not seen before. Gladstone delivers a truly unique performance where she genuinely steals the screen from the likes of De Niro and DiCaprio, even with significantly less dialogue. She plays Molly, a sharp, dapper member of the Osage tribe who has benefited from her extended family's newfound oil wealth, and yet is undoubtedly skeptical of this massive recent influx of white Americans from all over who are only too happy to work as servants for her and her family. <laughs> this all plays out during a high energy opening sequence where Scorsese, with a huge assist from longtime editor Thelma Schoonmaker, she's really one of the best, they adeptly introduce us to this little section of the Roaring Twenties with all the requisite hustling and efforts from these non Osage folks to each kind of land their own meal ticket. And one such individual happens to be Leo's Ernest, who we witnessed courting Molly while working as her driver. He told me you was, you was going with Matt Williams for a time. You talk too much. Oh, no, I don't talk too much. Thinking who I got to beat in this horse race, that's all. I didn't realize this was a race. I don't care for watching horses. Well, I'm a different kind of horse. <laughs> what was that? That's how you are. I don't know what she said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. <laughs> 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 
Those early sequences of Molly and Ernest, for lack of a better term, I guess, dating, (laughs) actually feel sincerely romantic, even with an immediate undercurrent of cynicism running through them. You see, Ernest is a recent World War I veteran who's now back home with no prospects, who himself has been recruited by his uncle, played by De Niro, to come down here with the express purpose of eventually marrying into the tribe as a means to getting access to oil licensing rights for their family. And even though there is an immediate awareness on Molly's part of Ernest's intentions as a, quote, coyote, as she nicknames him, it becomes clear just how much genuine affection that these two have for each other. No, no. No. No, don't close it. What? Wait. We need to be quiet for a while. Storm. It's, uh, well, it's powerful. <laughs> so we need to be quiet for a while. It's good for the crops, that's for sure. Just be still. Their relationship blossoms into marriage, but eventually gets increasingly complicated as Hale's machinations, with Ernest often working as his middleman to squeeze every last dollar out of this tribe for himself, get increasingly brutal. And Molly starts to feel increasingly sick. Two circumstances which do not seem isolated from each other. This film does get very violent at points. More and more Osage are killed in brutal fashion, with seemingly no one being held accountable for these murders. It was during this film's midsection which I found myself feeling increasingly angry, which I'm sure was the filmmaker's point. Scorsese with co-writer Eric Roth is holding up a very unforgiving mirror to unfettered capitalism during this point of American history, about 100 years ago. It's all fun and good to get sucked into it thanks to gorgeously shot images, thanks to DP Rodrigo Prieto, great job, of tribesmen dancing under oil geysers, or early cars all drag racing through a crowded downtown street. But on the other side of that coin, not only comes a series of unsettling acts of murder, and mostly towards unarmed women no less, but all of the ruthless machinations driving them, and the cover-ups thereafter. Now, very few perpetrators are actually presented here as, quote, smart criminals. Almost everyone comes off as bumbling about, which is most represented in Leo's performance. He's initially presented as a simpleton who just loves money and women. You know, you got, you got nice color skin. What color would you say that is? My color. And while his character never really evolves much past that, you can see how someone lacking such self-awareness can so easily drift into orchestrating a disturbing number of brutally callous acts towards the family of the woman whom he claims to love and care for. And Gladstone's often wordless performance is the other side of the coin, because of true-to-life circumstances relating to her real-life character's ailing health at points throughout the film, her character is not always able to articulate what she's going through. But boy, do we feel it, just looking at her, on her face, with her reserved gestures at points. This is someone watching her world crumble around her, making an exhausting effort to just stay alert, barely, and hip to those around her. You want to go to Washington, D.C.? This may be the last thing I do. Gladstone is nothing short of a revelation in this movie. Please send help. There's murder in Osage, and the police do nothing. And this brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Now about that previously mentioned opening sequence. Just a gorgeous combination of montage and longer tracking shots taking us around the town of Fairfax, Oklahoma, which is in full-on boomtown mode as flocks of people are coming in through the train. The streets are packed with well-dressed locals and merchants trying to get their share, and this is all surrounded by vast swaths of open land punctuated with pump jacks, oil pump jacks throughout. 
Next to a wedding sequence, which occurs a bit later, this is undoubtedly the most hopeful scene in the movie. And what makes it even better is a relatively lively selection from the score composed by a longtime collaborator of the directors. And that composer would be Toronto's own Hall of Fame musician Robbie Robertson, who sadly passed away just a couple of months ago at the age of 80. The score that he conducted for this film was his very last piece of music, closing out an amazing career going back to the mid-60s when he first got notices for being the lead guitarist for Bob Dylan. He was a guitarist and songwriter who eventually co-formed the legendary rock collective known as The Band, who would be prominently featured in one of Scorsese's earliest documentaries, The Last Waltz. And among their most notable hits was the smash single The Weight, which is often used as a needle drop from many films. You've heard it. I pulled into Nazareth, was feeling about half past dead. I just need some place where The score he conducted for this film is definitely very Western-tinged, with a lot of First Nations musical elements incorporated into its sound. Now, being a First Nations descent himself, Robertson also recruited several First Nations musicians into his orchestra, often using a lot of native instruments. And what results is a relatively low-key, bluesy rock soundscape, which includes a lot of percussion. For me, the rather rock-tinged opening section of this score remains my favorite. This track is called Osage Oil Boom. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. I'm actually a bit torn about this category overall, as you could make a case that the perspective of this film is not always what it should be with regards to the Osage tribe. There are certainly some tricky choices made here with regards to the structure of this narrative that I'm sure will elicit understandable criticism from some. That not enough time is spent getting to know Lily's family or that the U.S. government might actually come off as, quote, saving the day during the third act, as the FBI starts to get involved in solving these murders. Oh, I was uh, sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. Hmm. Huh. See, see what about them? See who's doing it. Hmm. You detective? You Pinkerton? What are you? No, sir, I was a Texas Ranger. I'm now with the federal government. It's called the Bureau of Investigation. Um... I tell you what, if you if you got questions, if you got questions, uh, I'll go talk to the sheriff. He can probably tell you what you need to know. Oh, yes, sir, I have. I, I, I talked to him, but I'm here to speak with Molly Burkhardt, whose who's sisters and mother is dead. And the lead Fed is played by Jesse Plemons in yet another stellar performance, and one that almost seems to be the mirror image of the FBI role that he played a couple of years ago in previous episode, Judas and the Black Messiah. 
While I certainly would not dismiss either of these criticisms, I at least felt as though they were somewhat mitigated by other narrative choices made by Scorsese and crew. For one thing, it becomes increasingly unavoidable to follow Leo's Ernest through much of the film's home stretch, if nothing else than to learn more with regards to how so many horrific crimes could persist for so long, well before the feds even got involved. Like I said, this particular telling of this particular story just does not let you off the hook as the audience. There's little in the way of triumph all the way to its sober conclusion. And it has always been Scorsese's M.O. to focus on the evil that men do, and often from the most objective perspective possible. Bottom line, would I have liked to have seen more from Lily Gladstone, along with others playing key members of her family, including Cara Jane Myers delivering a stellar performance as her spirited, belligerent sister, Anna? Well, undoubtedly, yes. Like I said, he had tough choices to make. But in the interest of trying to be historically accurate and also keeping the focus of the story on the most interesting aspects, I feel as though he threaded that needle pretty well. Just my opinion. And now the next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. As you would expect from a Scorsese epic on the scale of his previous Goodfellas, there are definitely some standout sequences utilizing both bravura camera work and editing. One which stood out to me occurs roughly about a half hour into the movie, and it's actually very simple on a thematic level, though I'm sure it was complex on a technical level. By this point, we have just started to witness the beginnings of Ernest's relationship with Molly and her extended family. We have seen countless images of the Osage living it up in fancy clothes, driving to fancy cars, and just a brief glance at their increasingly extensive homes. Well, this sequence provides us with the first opportunity to go inside the home of Molly's extended family. And I could be mistaken, but this seems to be done with a Steadicam. The camera takes us through the main entrance and gently circles through the first floor of this home, going from room to room. And what's most surprising about this is that we see mostly non-Osage white folks making themselves at home, kicking back for a meal, tending to their children, with just Molly and a couple of her cousins scattered throughout. Hmm. In other words, this plan described by De Niro's William Hale of white opportunists to integrate themselves into the Osage family bloodline to nab oil rights, well, it's already begun. They're already taking over. (laughs) It's not a particularly long sequence, nor does it seem to be particularly showy in the vein of the now famous Copacabana sequence from Goodfellas, but it's a perfect visual representation of the thrust of this story. And this brings me to the final category. That would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Killers of the Flower Moon was a massive film from a production standpoint, costing around $200 million. Yes, that is a lot for what is essentially on paper a very grim period drama. But as far as I'm concerned, the money was all there on the screen. There is a wide scope to what we see visually, and it's all tangible. Cows, horses, trains, and pretty much an entire village built from scratch. Along with this was a massive cast and an extensive production schedule. I believe production actually first started before COVID, back in 2019. For Marty, because we're on a first-name basis, this was a long-time passion project, and you could definitely see the passion on the screen. And as dazzled as I was by the lead performances, especially Gladstone, who I will be very disappointed should she not receive Oscar recognition, it really comes down to a true master to pull it all together in the end. For directing what very well could be his best film overall since Goodfellas, think about it. Martin Scorsese is the MVP. In a sense, the tragedy becomes theater, and it supports the law that went in there. They did go in, it's true, and they did get them, but it became theater. And I felt ultimately it had to end with the obituary of Molly because that brings it way down. In other words, nothing, nothing is solved. It's an ongoing problem. 
you see. We don't want to just end it and say, okay, everybody's in jail. No, no. Yeah, they went to jail, yes. It doesn't matter. It's an ongoing problem. Um, and so I felt um, in, a, in an odd way, the tragedy becomes grist for the mill of entertainment. That's all it is. And then it's dispensed with, you know. And so I said, no, we have to make a mark here somehow. My rating for Killers of the Flower Moon would be five stars out of five. Now, having only seen this once, it might be too soon to toss out hyperbole. Well, it's kind of too late, actually. I already did. (laughs) And Lord knows I have been more often put off, or at least a bit moderate, on most highly acclaimed three-hour-plus auteur films of recent years. I mean, I've had issues with Oppenheimer, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Scorsese's own The Irishman, to anything directed by Ari Aster. I've just found myself increasingly resistant to serious films with padded runtime. But I did not feel that here. This runtime and everything it contains feels earned. This might be a masterpiece. And from my standpoint, designating the best film of 2023, as of right now, of course, it's just late October, mind you. Well, this film is in a very close race with previous episode Past Lives. Yeah, high praise. And if you're looking to watch Killers of the Flower Moon, it is now playing in theaters. And see it on the biggest screen possible. And that ends another opportunistic review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.